0: Today we return to our series in 1 Samuel. We took about four weeks off or so to do some important things before Christmas. And, uh, and Nathan and Trent led us in some great messages in the last three weeks. Today we come back to 1 Samuel, a series we started back in early fall. As I said earlier, 1 Samuel is a story of how God is reasserting his righteous reign among his people... And doing it through his anointed one, his man, his king. Really, that's the story of the whole Bible. So let's begin by reviewing some things that we've been seeing in these first 14 or so chapters of 1 Samuel. We've been seeing over and over again, this is the first thing in your notes, the need for a righteous king. The need for a righteous king. That's how the book that came before 1 Samuel, at least chronologically came before, that's how it ended. Judges 21 ended like this, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a leadership problem. So when we come to 1 Samuel, we're not surprised to read of of Hannah's prayer, at the end of her prayer. That the Lord will bring divine judgment upon sin, and there is a coming king, an anointed one. She said, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he'll thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's an important verse for the whole of First and Second Samuel. And it's especially an important verse for 1 Samuel 15, which we'll focus on later today. But going through 1 Samuel, you'll remember that 1 Samuel 3 introduced us to a young prophet, Samuel. God's beginning to speak now again to his people. Samuel's not the coming king, but he's the kingmaker. He's the forerunner. He's the one preparing Israel for the anointed one. Chapters 4 through 7 are maybe kind of like a waiting room, almost. There's no mention of any king, but it's setting up the picture for uh, the need for righteous rule. It it anticipates a a king to come, one who will lead God's people through all these whiplashing ups and downs, a a good victory here and then bad sin there. It's a roller coaster, chapters 4 through 7. And one of the downward takes of those chapters is in chapter 8, when Israel demands a king, a king like the nations. God was already going to give them a king, but in his timing, in a king of his own making, a king of his own kind. But they want a king who's like the nations. And hence, it's a rejection of God as their king. But God gives them what they want. He gives them Saul. In chapter 9 and 10, he's appointed as king, and he's a mixed bag. He, he's one of them. He, he follows after God somewhat. He seems to want to go God's way, but, but there are these hints again and again, more than hints. There are these, these stories of Saul showing his hand and showing that he's not a king like God would have. He's very much like a, a king like the nation's. But one of the hopeful spots is chapter 11, where there's a military victory over the Ammonites. And then things look promising there for a little bit. In chapter 12, Samuel preaches to God's people to be faithful to the Lord. And it's a fork in the road moment. Will you and your king go God's way or not? When we come to chapter 13, though, there's clear indication this thing is heading south. A downward turn. Saul makes an unlawful sacrifice. He was impatient. He was faithless. He was full of fear. When he was confronted by Samuel about his sin, he was defensive, and then he just went silent. Perhaps he was despondent. Samuel speaks God's judgment to him. His offspring will not reign on the throne. The throne will go to another. He'll be a one-and-done kind of king. That's what we covered before Christmas, the first 13 chapters. Now we come to 1 Samuel 15, and you might notice I've skipped 14. Let me just give you a quick overview of chapter 14. Not because it's difficult or controversial. That's not why we would skip it. That's not our MO here. Frankly, if that was our MO, we would skip 15, which is far more controversial and difficult. And chapter 14, rather, is just a dot in this trajectory between chapter 13 and 15. In chapter 13, we said then that the crown was beginning to crumble. And then in chapter 15, which we've read earlier in the service... We saw clearly Saul is now rejected by the Lord. Well, chapter 14 is a really long story. That's just a blip in the screen and that, that line, that progression. Here's the story. It's a battle scene. Chapter 14 has Saul and his son Jonathan on separate missions. And in Saul's camp, he requires this oath out of the blue. No one eats until all of the enemy is dead. And anyone who does, they'll be dead. Well, Jonathan didn't hear that. He wasn't there. He doesn't know. So he eats, and he's nourished. Someone finally whispers to him, Hey, Jonathan, your dad said no one was supposed to eat or they'd die. Jonathan rolls his eyes. It's not in the passage. You can just kind of picture this. Jonathan maybe rolls his eyes a little bit, whatever, and kind of goes on. After all, it is a silly oath. It's out of, the, out of the clear blue. It's not a scriptural command. And besides that, there's some benefit to eating when you're at war. You need that physical nourishment, right? But Toward the end of the chapter, Saul finds out that his son has eaten. And no matter that Jonathan never heard the oath from the beginning... Saul insists that his son has broken the oath and must be executed. His seed, the heir, his offspring, his right-hand man in military battle. In fact, much better, it seems, of a general, leader, and warrior than his father. If it were not for the people stepping in at the end of chapter 14 to rescue Jonathan from his own father, he would have been executed. You see, it's just a a dot in the progression that's going south. Now we're ready to focus in on chapter 15. Notice chapter 15 begins with the word of the Lord. Once again, God is speaking through his prophet Samuel. About a dozen times in this chapter, God's word in one form or another is referred to or implied, the the command of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the word of the Lord. The word that comes to Saul through the prophet is not an easy one for us to hear. So that leads to the second point in your notes, the first being the need for a righteous king. That being an overview of the first 14 chapters. Now, as we dig into chapter 15 at the beginning, we see the need for divine vengeance. Divine vengeance. Don't forget how Hannah prayed. There's going to be a coming king, and the adversaries of the Lord will be obliterated. That might help a little bit, but not much, as we read again these first three verses in chapter 15. There's no way around the difficulty or even horror of these verses. But the solution is not in ignoring their reality or turning the page as fast as we can to read something that's happier. Here are a few things that we can and and we should say about God's justice and judgment. One, God is righteous and just in all that he does. Scripture says this again and again. Abraham said in Genesis 18, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Moses said in Deuteronomy 32, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. We read elsewhere that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not sadistic. He's not cruel for cruel sake. In fact, he's remarkably merciful. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm not crying. I'm just, I've been <laughs> preached in three weeks. My voice isn't there. He's merciful and gracious and he's slow to anger. Slow to anger. So God is righteous and just in all that he does. Secondly, we should say the whole world is in rebellion against God. And thus is under his just judgment. His mercy is not deserved. His judgment is deserved. That's the given. Mercy is the surprise. That's what's amazing. Third. We should say that the Amalekites were fitting objects for God's judgment. One, because they were just everyday sinners, and sin deserves God's judgment, but but also because they were really bad sinners. They were. They, They were the first to fight against Israel when Israel was simply sojourning through the desert in Exodus 17. Apparently, it was an especially ruthless attack So much so that at the end of the attack, God himself said, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek. Some years later, Moses finds it necessary to repeat that that promise from God and to remind the people about Amalek. Listen to this. This is telling. Deuteronomy 25, Moses said, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your, your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven you shall not forget. First Samuel 15 is some 200 years after this. For 200 years, the Amalekites mocked God and fought against His people cruelly. One thing we should take away from all this is that God is a patient God. Here, He's slow to anger. He issued judgment on that nation and people, and for 200 years, he waited and waited, and waited. He's slow to anger. We should also tuck this away. Another principle here is that God restrains evil in this world. He restrains evil in this world. The world is bad, yes, but it's not as bad as it could be. Sometimes he constrains evil like uh, the Tower of Babel. He brings in different languages and confuses them and ceases their wickedness in opposition to him because they can't build the tower and they go in different directions. That's a restraint of evil. Sometimes God restrains evil through cataclysm, as he did in the days of Noah or in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And sometimes in the Old Testament, he used a people, Israel, to be an imperfect instrument For his judgment upon another. By the way, even today, in his providence, God may use one imperfect nation to be a stop of more wickedness in another nation. Who could doubt that the that World War II was a just war for the Allies? All this is part of God's restraint of sin in the world. It is a wicked world, but it could be worse. Have you heard this before? Hitler loved his dog. Hitler loved his dog. He could have been worse. He wasn't, he wasn't a dog beater. He could have been worse. God's in that, whether he uses spiritual means to restrain a heart, whether he uses providential means like World War II, or whether he uses more specific means like, at times, using an imperfect instrument of judgment upon another for his purposes. Of course, none of this means that God calls Christians today to go wipe out a people or even a person. No. What we're reading of here in 1 Samuel 15 was unique to that time and place in the Old Testament era. But neither should we think that God has now gone sweet and gentle in the New Testament. Back then, he was sort of grumpy and fickle, and he just liked to burn things when he was bored. No. If you're having trouble reading 1 Samuel 15, you might not want to read the book of Revelation. God's judgment is all over the Bible. It's not just an Old Testament thing. First Samuel 15, rather, is a blip on the screen compared to the final judgment that's to come described in Revelation. It's a foreshadow of what's to come. In that sense, if we could rip 1 Samuel 15 out of our Bibles and it not be there, we've gotten nowhere. We still have God's judgment to come at the end that's far more universal than his destruction of the Amalekites here in 1 Samuel 15. On any account, whether we're talking 1 Samuel 15 judgment or end-time revelation judgment, it's God's judgment. Make no mistake. This is not Israel's judgment upon the Amalekites. It is God's judgment upon the Amalekites choosing to use an imperfect instrument like Israel. He can do that. He can do whatever He wants. He's just. More could be said about these difficult few verses at the beginning. But hopefully that's enough of an explanation, at least for those of us who believe the Bible is true and God is good and we can trust it even even when God's word is hard or mysterious. That's the need for divine vengeance. That's how the chapter begins. But then it moves to this. Thirdly, the need for full obedience. This is a command. And Saul has to fulfill it. The need for full obedience. The command was clear. Devote to destruction. All that they have, do not spare them. The command was clear and it was complete. And what did Saul do? Look at verse 7. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. We're not told why. Particularly, we're not told why Saul saved the king Maybe as a trophy. Maybe maybe he had plans of partnering up in some way. I don't know. Nevertheless, Saul's failure to wipe out the Amalekites meant that Israel fought against the Amalekites for the next 300 years. 300 years. Think of how many lives were lost at the hands of the Amalekites because Saul didn't finish the job. And ironies of ironies... Irony of ironies is that an Amalekite is the one who finally brings Saul to his death. In 2 Samuel 1, we find that out. It was an Amalekite that brought Saul down. It's a reminder to us, isn't it, that sin can have unforeseen consequences. It can have far-reaching consequences. Here's this one act of disobedience, and there are implications for Saul's death. And the death of other Israelites 300 years later. But back to the flow here of 1 Samuel 15. Notice in verse 12, here we get a real clue into the direction of Saul's heart in all this. In case you think he just left something off the list or it was an an oversight on his part, we read in verse 12 that he built a monument for himself. A monument to himself. After defeating the Amalekites, he celebrates by putting up some sort of structure. A structure of his victory. A, a structure sim- symbolizing him and his power. A monument to himself. What a contrast of those Ebenezer stones back in chapter 7. Remember those? There, the Ebenezer stones symbolized this. The Lord has helped us. How different than the stones that Joshua pulled out of the Jordan in Joshua chapter 4. Those were to be a memorial, a monument of what God had done in rescuing them them from Egypt. Bringing them safely through the water. But Saul has a victory. Never mind that he was disobedient in the process. But he has a victory, and he celebrates it not by praising God, but praising self. Not by lauding the Lord, but lauding self. It's a clear indication of where this thing's going and what's behind all that he's doing. Samuel was told what was going on. So after a night of crying to the Lord in anger, he goes to Saul. Verse 13 says that Saul came out to meet him first. Saul says, blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Such confidence, right? Either he's ignorant of his disobedience, which isn't likely, or pretending not to acknowledge it in any way, shape, or form. But it's obvious what's happened here. Samuel can hear sheep and oxen and donkeys And you're not supposed to have them out of the military field. This isn't a farm all of a sudden. What are you doing with oxen out here? What is this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears? A few verses later, Samuel pleads with Saul again. Look at verse 17. Though you are little in your own eyes, though you feel weak on the inside, you who hid in the luggage, you who thought, ah, I'm, the, I'm from the smallest tribe, who am I? Nevertheless, you are the Lord's anointed. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he set you on a mission, verse 18 says, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Why? Why? It doesn't make sense. We'll get to Saul's responses to these rebukes in just a minute here. But first, just notice the seriousness of the sin according to Samuel. Samuel will not not let anything like oversight be factored into the equation here, or or good enough, or almost there. It tells us that half obedience is no obedience. It's a sobering reminder to us today because God still commands. He still commands. Not this, but he commands many things of us as his people. I wonder if some of us are Actually, a little sympathetic with Saul here. Maybe more sympathetic with Saul than with Samuel. Samuel comes across as rigid, hard-nosed. You know, a guy, he should work for the IRS or something. Saul did 99% of what he was supposed to do. He did all the hard stuff. Just kept the king, that was it. Oh, we can sympathize with Saul because we're familiar with half obedience. And we're familiar with tinkering with God's laws. And we're familiar with ignoring many of them. There's the need for full obedience, but when that doesn't happen, there's the need for true repentance. Fourthly, there's the need for true repentance here. Saul's responses to Samuel's different rebukes give us a web of deception and cover-up. He shifts blame. Look down at verse 13. That's the verse that says, I've performed the command of the Lord, verse 14. Well, what's that bleeding of the sheep that I hear? And then look at verse 15. Saul said, They, the people, have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. The people. Look at verse 21. He does it again. But the people took the spoil, sheep, and oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Well, this is just like Adam in the garden. When confronted with his sin, Adam said to God, Oh, it was the woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate. There's twofold blaming going on there. It was the woman and the woman you gave me. It's your fault, her fault, not my fault. Saul does the same thing. He puts all the blame on the, the people. Even though, look at verse 8. There it was explicit. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Look at verse 9. It says, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep. But now this confrontation comes and it's just the people, the people, the people. And then he spiritualizes his sin by saying the best animals were kept for sacrifices. Verse 15 and 21 both say that. And that sounds noble. It sounds like a good idea. We're not sure even whether it's true. We're not sure their original intentions in keeping all that is good and destroying what's worthless. That sounds like that's not all sacrifice stuff, right? But whether they intended to make sacrifices with these animals or not, it's still disobedience. God didn't say, get rid of most of them and then keep some animals for sacrifice and sacrifice them to me. God didn't say that. He said all. Oh. Not only was it disobedience, it was just plain dumb. It's bad reasoning. Bad reasoning to change God's commands in order to give something to God. It's senseless and backwards to disobey one of his commandments in order to bless him with sacrifice. None of us have probably said, yeah, Lord, I I stole from work but to give it to the church. None of us have probably said, yeah, Lord, I cheated on my income tax last year, but, but for just to give more to you. Maybe more common is the mindset where we seek to compensate for certain sins with other religious activities. So there's this sin over there that we feel bad about and and so to compensate we we make sure we're reading our Bibles consistently, praying more, family devotions more, go to church, give more. When we sin, we need repentance and restoration. We don't need to soothe our pierced consciences with our good works. That's anti gospel. There's no hope there. So let Samuel's response to Saul's nonsense be a rebuke to all of us today. In verse 22, listen to this. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Does God want you to sin and make up for it with other sacrifices? Just obey. Just obey. To obey is better than sacrifice. And verse 23 tells us what's going on with this sin. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. This is what sin is. It's devilish. It's demonic. It's like divination. Presumption. When it's presumption upon the Lord, when you presume to alter his ways, his commands... When you, you you alter them according to your wisdom, presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. You might have noticed that Saul did finally acknowledge his sin in verse twenty-four, but it seems trite and quick. And he quickly returns to blame, to blame shifting and, and excuse making. He says in verse 24, it was because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. It's worth repeating what Samuel said earlier in verse 17. You're little in your own eyes, but are you not the head of the tribes of Israel and God's anointed king over Israel? It'd be worth reminding Saul what Samuel said at the beginning of the chapter. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Saul's got this all backwards. I feared the people, not God. I obeyed their voice, not his. As I've said before, Saul's fear will be a recurring and increasing theme throughout the rest of his life. Sin grows. Sin grows. All this is a vivid picture of the deception of sin. It's an excellent case study in the nature of sin and the deceptiveness of sin. Sin is by nature blinding. That's why Saul comes skipping out to Samuel like nothing's wrong. He doesn't feel like nothing's wrong. But feeling innocent is not necessarily the same thing as being innocent. Feeling like you have a clear conscience does not mean you do. Sin is by nature self-deceptive. Sin is by nature protective and defensive. Sin by nature seeks to justify, seeks to minimize, seeks to blame anything but to take blame. We might blame our circumstances for our sin. We might blame mom and dad, the way they raised us, a bad work environment bad friends or something, a spouse, suffering. We should be suspicious of ourself. You should always remember that you're not objective when it comes to viewing your heart. In fact, often your sin shows itself more clearly to other people than it does to you. Sometimes someone points something out to you and it's not right. You have, to, you have to check. You have to explore whether that's legitimate or not. There is such a thing as a, a rebuke that's, that's not a healthy or right one. It's not correct. But often our friends see us better than ourselves. We've got to trust them. We've got to remove the log from our own eye so we can help our brother with the speck that's in his eye. We never see ourselves with 2020 vision. Oh sure, we never see someone else's heart with 2020 vision either. But but just know this. You don't see yourself with 2020 vision. So be suspicious of self. Suspect that you're probably being more selfish, sinful, self-focused and self-justifying than you think you are. Purpose in your heart. May we all purpose in our hearts this day that when sin is noticed and brought to our attention, we won't go Saul's way. We won't be like Saul. His repentance, if you call it that, was half-hearted and trumped up and only superficial. We shouldn't make too much of that seemingly noble comment in verse 25 where he says, "'Please pardon my sin and return with me, "'that I may bow before the Lord.'" He's likely only after a fix. It's like he's saying, tell me it's all good. Just give me a thumbs up. Let me know I'm good with God and let's move on. In case you think I'm being harsh on old Saul, notice verse 30. There he confesses again. He says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me. He's all about saving face. This isn't repentance. This isn't godly sorrow. He's about reputation. He's about survival. It's about keeping up appearances. Again, he cares what everybody thinks. Except God. Except God. And by the way, how telling are those little pronouns there in verse 30. Where he says, honor me me before my people. That I might bow before your God. It's impersonal. So different than David's repentance, where he said, Against you and you only have I sinned. Lastly, we see the need for another king. It's obvious by now, isn't it? We need another king. Samuel makes it clear that God has now rejected him as king. Chapter 13 was a rejection of Saul's lineage, but chapter 15 is an explicit rejection of Saul as king, and that rejection is immediate. That means in God's eyes, he is no longer king of Israel. This judgment is clear. It's final, it's repeated. It's in verse 23, it's again in verse 26. Because you have rejected God's word, and again and again and again, this isn't the first time, God has now rejected you as king over Israel. Saul's desperate. There's that striking moment in verse 27. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. How fitting. Samuel sees an illustration The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. And he will give it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. We'll be formally introduced to him next week, next chapter. Of course, it's King David, isn't it? It's King David. As God said back in chapter 13, Your kingdom will not continue, Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. David is the Lord's anointed. This is inevitable and it's unalterable despite Saul's wrangling, fighting, pursuing after David, trying to wipe out the promised Messiah. Oh, he's desperate in the chapters that come to overturn what God has decreed. But it's irrevocable. You see in verse 29... God doesn't regret. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. He is not a man that he should have regret. He's not like us parents who lay down a harsh penalty upon our kids, but then the next day soften it by half. He's not like a judge that says, well, the book says this, but eh, you look pretty clean cut. You're contributing to society? All right. Just penalty, just a, a fine or something like that. No, God isn't like that. This is unalterable. He doesn't regret. But the chapter also says that God regretted. Twice it says God regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Verse 11 and verse 35. Now how can God regret when he knows the future? How can God regret... When it's his plan. He's not riding shotgun. It's his plan. How can he regret? Well, it's mysterious. It's not fully within our understanding. But we have to say this, that both things are true. That God is sovereign and wise. It's his plan. He's not surprised by anything. He makes no mistakes. And on the other side, we must say... He is not indifferent to sin. He's not unemotional about our sin. He's grieved by it. Somehow he is part of the time-space continuum with us. And some things we do grieve him. God regretted from one angle. He regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Samuel is grieved by it all as well, according to verse 34. And yet he's resolved. He has to do what Saul would not. Verse 32, Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. I mean, why not? You're the one guy who survived. You and some cows are the only ones that survived. And you think, I'm fine. I'm good. At least I'm alive. I could have been dead. So I, I'm not sad anymore. Yeah, everyone I know is dead. But, but I'm, he says, I'm not sad anymore. But surprise. Samuel said, verse 33, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. Before the Lord. Now, why did God go down this path with Saul in the first place? Back to this thing of God regretting. Why did God use Saul at all? Why not just, just go, okay, a king? I know, I know a guy named David. He's he's gonna be the king. That's it. There it goes. We're gonna run with him. Well, remember, the people asked for a king like the nations. Oh, God was clearly in on the process of Saul becoming king. Just reread the chapters before. You see God involved. It's that guy. Okay, say this. Tell him that. But it's clear now that Israel has gotten exactly what they asked for, what they demanded for, a king like the nations. That's what Saul so clearly is now. One who, yes, is impressive and tall on the outside, but he's full of fear and self-focus on the inside, as any one of us would be if we didn't have the Lord as our rock and our refuge and fortress. He's a king who relies on his own strength and his own reasoning. He's a king who is impetuous and impatient and self-protective. A king who will kill his own son for unknowingly breaking one of his arbitrary senseless vows. He's a king not for the people like God said the king should be. He's for himself. Proof? He builds a monument to himself after the army as a whole is victorious. In short, he's a king who rejects God's word again and again. He will not listen to the voice of the Lord. That's a king like the nation's. Saul rejected God's word, so God rejected Saul as king of Israel. One is coming who will not be rejected but accepted by God. It's David, a man after God's own heart. He's not perfect, but he is accepted, not rejected by the Lord. He's God's man, he's the anointed, he's the promised one. But he wasn't perfect. He had decent repentance a time or two. But he was far from full obedience. You could argue that some of David's sin seasons are worse than what we've seen so far in Saul. He's not the answer, not ultimately. We have to go further down the line, and literally the line, the line of David, all the way to Jesus great son of David, son of Abraham, God's true anointed, the fullest and final king. Unlike Saul, unlike David even, and like us too, unlike us too, Jesus did not reject God's word. He kept all of God's word. And yet he was rejected by God for us and for our salvation. That's what the cross was all about. That's why Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken that we might not be forsaken, but accepted. He was rejected that we might be made part of the family, fully adopted. We who deserve rejection every bit as much as Saul can be accepted by God on the basis of someone else's acceptability. Jesus, the perfect one, and the perfect sacrifice. Do you believe he's died for your sins? Do you believe there's forgiveness in his name? Do you have some other hope, some other thing you're standing on? Do you just read 1 Samuel 15 and say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm probably getting in. Really? Or does God demand that justice be met because he's righteous and hence demands that there be perfect obedience, not not good intentions? That's very clear from Saul. He demands perfect obedience, and there's only one hope, that one was perfect for us and gives his righteousness to us as a gift. We pray that you know that. You believe it and rejoice with us in it. Don't reject his word. Christian, God's word is the key to 1 Samuel 15. There are a dozen or so references or implications about his word in 1 Samuel 15. At three different times, God's word comes to Saul through Samuel. Once for instruction... Another for rebuke. And the last one for judgment. And that last one of judgment is not just that Saul will not be king anymore. Look at how the chapter ends. They depart separately. Verse 34, Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house. And Samuel did not see Saul again until that day, till the day of his death. That doesn't just mean they weren't on speaking terms. That's unfortunate. This means that the word of the Lord has gone out from Saul. There's no prophet. There's no word. These are days where the Bible has not been written like we know it today. They have some Bible, but they don't have Bible like we have Bible. They lean on God speaking through prophets. And Samuel will grow desperate in the future chapters Longing, groping for God to speak to him. We saw it back in, in December. He'll eventually go to a uh, to a, a diviner, a rec- uh, what's it called, a necromancer, who speaks to the dead, so that he can hear from Saul, uh, Samuel, who's already dead. He's that desperate. He goes to the witch for truth. You see, we live and die by the Word. We live and die by the Word. It's still true today. We may not get the Word through some prophet walking around, but we have even more fully the Word. We live and die by the Word. For us, that means the preaching of God's Word as He speaks afresh. God speaks afresh as preachers get his word right. Do you believe he speaks right now? Do you listen right now? When you read his word in private, do you read it as God's word to you, alive and active, sharper than any two edged sword? Will you listen? Will you keep listening? Will you trust him at his word? Or will you alter his commands according to your own preferences and wisdom? Will you receive correction when it comes? Or will you deny and cover up and minimize and blame others? Will you repent? Will you see the beauty of repentance? Like David showed us in Psalm 51. A psalm of his repentance after he was confronted with that great sin the era of Bathsheba, he saw repentance as beautiful and joy giving and restorative and healthy and not just getting caught. Will we do that and go God's way? Let's pray that it's so. Would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, we need your help to go your way. That means, for starters, seeing ourselves as you see us, seeing ourselves in need of a Savior. It means us putting all our eggs into the basket of Jesus as our salvation, our hope, our righteousness. Lord, we pray as Christians you'd help us to go your way and to do your will, to do it better than we did In 2013, to grow in your ways, to love your ways, to hate what you hate, help us, we pray. And Lord, where we fail, refresh us and restore us again with the gospel of Jesus that died for the sins of the future, not just the past. We thank you for your mercy, Lord. We pray now, even as we sing, it, as we close, we pray you would work. We pray you'd stir, you'd convict. We pray you'd refresh and encourage, you'd strengthen. We pray you would have your own way because you're the Lord. We trust you. Amen.